Hello. It's Conservative Party Conference Week, and leadership hopeful Priti Patel has had the BBC in her sights. To rapturous applause, she praised GB News, describing it as a disruptor to take on the establishment, but labelled the BBC as free speech deniers. It's never been easy running the corporation and standing up to criticism from all parts of the political spectrum. One who knows this very well is my guest this week. I first met him when he was 24, and I was his boss on the BBC One Nationwide programme. Since then, he has had an extraordinary career, perhaps the most extraordinary in British broadcasting history. Mark Thompson, now Sir Mark, moved on to be editor of the BBC One Nine O'Clock News at the age of just 30, then editor of Panorama and controller of BBC Two before he was 40. After a short period as director of television, he left to become chief executive of Channel 4 before returning to the corporation as its director general in 2004 following the defenestration of Greg Dyke and his chairman, Gavin Davis. After eight years in the job, he stood down to take on another extraordinary challenge, turning around the fortunes of the New York Times as its CEO, which he duly did to great acclaim. Oh, I forgot to mention that he also became a visiting professor of rhetoric and the art of public persuasion at the University of Oxford. After the New York Times, he took on the chairmanship of the Ancestry website and some other directorships. Now 66 and hardly stuck for cash, he was surely going to slow down. Uh, No. On Monday, he's about to start a new job as CEO and chair of CNN, the US news channel, much hated by Donald Trump and many Republicans, and which has found itself trailing behind Fox News and MSNBC in the ratings war, as news channels face declining viewership due to younger audiences moving to other platforms. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Why did you want to take on another big, big job? Well, I think all I want to say, Roger, is that the the particular nut I was put on earth to try and crack, which is how do you take some timeless values around journalism and more broadly around, you know, publicly valuable, interesting content to be, you know, shared amongst millions and millions of people? How do you take those timeless ambitions and values and somehow make sense of them in you know, the world we live in now with its very different patterns of behavior, media consumption and technology, um, that's unfinished business. And for as long as it's unfinished, I'm, I've obviously got a soft spot for uh, opportunities to have another crack, crack at solving the puzzle, basically. <laughs> well, there must be easier ones. But you did publish in 2016, Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics, which puts together a series of lectures you'd given at Oxford. So you worried away at this subject for a long time. And of course, central to the argument, it seems to me, always is this issue of impartiality and what it is and what it isn't. What is impartiality to you? Well, I think in the end, what's your um, your ambition or even your, your metaphor for, for what journalism is? And I guess mine is that we, we're trying to do a, a rough kind of science. I mean, we're not going to ever be able to do it to the precision that scientists do. We won't have as much evidence. We will have to make judgments as we go and sometimes publish because news in particular 
and kind of real-time political debate happens when it happens, not when the dust has settled and the historians have looked at it all. So we have to do it on the fly, and it's imperfect. But we're trying, like scientists, to be objective, to, to weigh evidence objectively on the basis that, that putting the fact and putting a fair balance of opinions in front of the public gives them a chance to, to, to figure out what's going on and to make up their own minds about what's going on. I think that biased journalism or journalism which comes with an ideological flavor to it always ends up being a version of telling people what to think not just giving them the facts but also in a sense giving them clues or just saying straight out loud who they should vote for or um, who they should um, blame or praise I'm not saying that that shouldn't be allowed. We live in countries with freedom of the press, and if people want to do that, they can. I've only ever been interested in the first kind, that that kind of quasi-scientific approach, even though we're not scientists and objectivity is probably ultimately impossible. So it's always an imperfect activity. It's never it's never perfect. But it's also you're doing it now at a most difficult time. Now in the past when you and I worked together there'd be an argument about what the facts were but broadly you had a hope that you could establish them and then the political parties and others would you know provide the solutions the interpretation whatever but about the basic facts you could get an agreement largely. Nazi agreement seems to me particularly difficult to achieve now. I, look, I, there's obviously some truth in what you say. We're living in the United States through some quite, quite interesting political times at the moment. And, and, you know, what can feel like in the UK, like a, a mild cold over here has turned into tuberculosis <laughs> on that front. Yes, I mean, you're dealing with the states in the states, let's be, which, with, with, deny, with, with the concept, which is ludicrous in my view, of alternative truths. Well, but don't you think that there's a trap there for the warriors of truth, that you've always been one and so am I, um, which is to think that politics is has always been basically based on facts that you've got enlightenment thinkers wearing togas or something, carefully weighing all the evidence before they go into the polling booths. That the reality about democratic politics, indeed all politics, has been that character, passion, prejudice has always played a gigantic part and as has gut instinct. And I think there's a spurious suggestion that once the, the public were perfectly informed and prepared to listen to and go through statistics and probability, and now they don't. It's always been a visceral world where superstition, fantasy, conspiracy theories rumors have played their a part and people spot judgment about character you can think about a politician well okay sometimes they exaggerate sometimes they may even lie um sometimes they do crazy things but i like rule breakers i like bad boys and the female equivalent of bad boys in other words people who break the rules break convention and speak for me that's not a new idea in my book i mean that that goes takes us back to ancient times the idea of the the uh, the rascal hero politician so none of this is new. It feels like a difficult time and it feels like a time when we're transitioning from relatively, uh, you know, half a century or more of relatively stable and kind of conventional and polite democratic politics in, in Western countries to something which is a lot more florid and, and strange and unpredictable. I mean, I have to say, as someone in, in the journalism business, it makes for very exciting times to be doing journalism. 
Well, I suppose for some people, war is a very exciting time, but some of us would like to avoid it. Of course, but it's not the job, to me, the job of journalists is to report the world as it is. Yeah, but what do you do? And let me give you an example of something that just happened in the UK. At the Conservative Party conference, Priti Patel, now an ex-Home Secretary, but, but someone who has ambitions, to rapturous applause, she praised GB News which is um, in some difficulty in this country, shall we say, uh, and Ofcom is investigating. Uh, she described it as a disruptor to take on the establishment and labelled the BBC as free speech deniers. Now, with the best will in the world, to describe the BBC <laughs> as free speech deniers, where, where do you go with that? And, and there's rapturous yeah. applause for it, and she will want to be back in the Cabinet shortly. What do you, if you were to meet her, and she was Home Secretary again, what would you say? Well, I, mean, I think what I'd politely, I, I guess, point out to anyone who thinks that the idea of having conventions around the limits of debate and of journalism, for example, that you won't give truck to um, conspiracy theories, that you will try and point out when someone is saying something which is you know, demonstrably not true, you pointed out. I, I would say that it's very important to say that, that, that although I do believe in free speech and I do believe that you know, on digital platforms and elsewhere, people should be free to say what they want, including to lie, by the way. I, the First Amendment of the US Constitution and the, the equivalent protections that we enjoy in the UK and Europe around free speech include the right to lie. I mean, so, you know, I'm not saying everyone has to tell the truth all the time on the air. I'm actually a libertarian about that. However, the idea that there are places where there is a real effort made in the way of editorial discretion that, you know, you decide, you know, what you're going to publish and you choose the truth and you don't choose to proclaim lives. That's also part of free speech. It's really important to say at the heart of free speech is the notion that you're free to publish what you want and to not publish what you want. It's not denying free speech to say, um, I'm going to publish X and not Y. On the contrary, the core of the First Amendment is that the government, politicians, shouldn't tell the press or anyone else what they can say. And um, Preeti and other politicians who, in a sense, want prescription about plurality of opinion, they're saying you're excluding some opinions, you're, you're excluding, you know, some of some political perspectives. You've got to be very careful. They, they shouldn't be telling or attempting to indeed pass legislation, you know, the, the idea of a free speech czar, you know, a, a phrase would have, which would have had George Orwell laughing, you know, till the cows come home, the idea that you actually enforce free speech with a government appointed person to enforce it. That's, that's, that's quite dangerous talk, it seems to me. The best thing politicians and the government can do with free speech is butt out and let a broad range of voices be heard by the public. Well, how broad? That's the problem. How broad? And whether or not you require at the heart of that uh, an organisation committed to a concept of public service broadcasting which deliberately plays down, if you like, opinion or, or has an obligation to balance opinion as well as trying to establish the facts. And the, rub, the other trouble is, of course, in a free market. There are plenty of rich millionaires wishing to buy up organisations to ensure that their views get transmitted, which can mean that large sections of the audience are left out. So I, I think the idea that one of the absolutely fundamental ideas of public service broadcasting is a positive decision to ensure a place and a significant prominent place for outlets, the BBC 
is one of many public broadcasters around the world, but let's talk about the BBC as a kind of par excellence, one of the very first and, and still to this day sort of paradigmatic of what public service broadcasting can be, that you ensure the public have access to that. So you can't absolutely, and you shouldn't attempt to, stop the public from, if they want to, finding other sources on the internet elsewhere. And I wouldn't be someone in favour of censoring conspiracy theories or, or crazy sites. I think in the end, the public have a right to read and if they choose to believe fantasies, I don't think we should be censoring that stuff. But, you, but hold on a second. Mark, Mark, that can't be right. Let, let me just, just say, that let can't me just, be right. That can't be right. Now, think of Germany in the 1930s, right, where we, where we got to, where the Jewish people, and you are married to a Jew, so you must be very close to you. All these conspiracy theories were put forward, and they built up an attitude in which it was possible for the disaster, the catastrophe of Nazism today. You've got to, as a society, say, we cannot let that happen again, surely. Well, I think you've got to be very careful with with the phrase, we cannot. So I want to be quite clear. I'm a very, very strong advocate, and I have the decades of employment and service to demonstrate it. I'm a very strong advocate of preserving a place for organisations like the BBC, Channel 4, actually the, the tradition of public service broadcasting, at ITV and indeed at Sky, Sky News. These are all, I mean, Sky News is not formally part of the system, but it's actually, its values have been very much in that tradition. I'm a passionate advocate of maintaining that. I'm not an advocate of censoring uh, varying and discordant views. I I am a, a very strong supporter of free speech and feel very comfortable with the situation in the United States where extremely repellent political discourse is also protected by the Constitution because people have a right to consume, to read, listen, watch um, content that they choose as citizens. And if you say sometimes that can lead to bad and indeed horrific outcomes, I would say we have other institutions, notably democratic institutions, which generally through history, ultimately, not always immediately, have done a good job of, in a sense, leading countries towards uh, greater civilization, greater respect for each other and so forth, though with some terrible counterexamples. I mean, do you think there's a threat to a democracy in the United States at the moment? I think that the United States is definitely going through a very difficult political period. I don't want to say at this stage that we're dealing with a mortal threat to democracy. And I think that's sometimes overdone generally on on the left. A lot of left-wing parties and individuals have a personal or a a collective party political interest in talking up a a major crisis in democracy. This does not look like, um, although it's a country like the UK with immense social and economic and other cultural problems, the United States is, is a, you know, they're going through a little local difficulty in the House of Representatives as of last night, but it's a country which continues to have a functioning, indeed at many levels, vibrant democracy. And interesting enough, I think there's a lot of lessons to teach the United Kingdom about democracy at city and state level. Um, there's genuine devolution of power to local communities in this country. And actually, interesting enough, in, in a way which many British people don't, I think, know, you have often very functioning, very effective bipartisan politics at city and state level. Well, uh, just one more thing on impartiality, and I'm afraid this is, um, this is a little argument that you and I have had in the past. When I first met you in uh, 1981, you were 24, I think, um, 
um, people are always saying, already saying you're going to be director general of the BBC. But put that aside, um, you wrote subsequently in 2010, or did in an interview with the New Statesman, to say that at that period, when you were working for me, in much of BBC Current Affairs, there was a massive bias to the left. And he said that staff were quite mystified by the rise of Margaret Thatcher. The organisation did struggle then with impartiality. Now, I think, let me put my position, I think you confuse something there, which is that young people who you're working with are, tend to be more liberal. They're socially liberal. Um, maybe they're a bit conventional or, haven't, or maybe they're economically illiterate. I was at the time. But you discounted all those presenters and editors who were struggling to impose the most <laughs> impartial way possible. Do you really think, you really think it was a yeah, left-wing I, bias I, in the BBC when you were there in 1982? I, yeah, a little bit of nuance was lost there somewhere on the cutting room floor with that quote. I mean, what I said was, I thought people, the majority of the people I met then, my contemporaries I meant principally, I guess, but I mean, also the old people like you, you must have at this point been in, early, you're in your early 30s or something. So even these kind of grown up, you know, the adults in the room, as it were, the, the majority of them, I thought, in their private lives probably were liberals and, and voted to the left. I also said in that interview, I thought there was a, an absolutely enormous effort made by them to not bring that to work. And when they were actually doing journalism, to do it impartially. And that, there was an em enormous commitment. The, the point I, I tried to make in that interview, I don't think it actually came out in the wash, was that the issue with that is you can have a collective worldview in the room, which even if you're sincerely trying to be impartial can still kind of miss things and turn out to be slightly limited and to bring with it it's a, not so much prejudices but just simply blind spots and the, the, the uh, well it is groupthink and no, i agree with that there's groupthink well, and that you, danger you, you spent, you spent all, all the these time. years thinking we were disagreeing and it turns out we were <laughs> we're in perfect agreement so look i know i thought it was a really i one thing that was really impressive about the bbc in those days i thought was that you could see in union meetings elsewhere it turned out that lime grove the head of current affairs had 50 15 different flavours of kind of hard left politics in, in di little different groupings and the rest of it. Honestly, I thought m most people were genuinely trying very sincerely to be objective. But I think Margaret Thatcher, who I think in retrospect, we can understand the, in a sense, where she and the free market uh, wave of Tories, where they were coming from. And indeed, some of us would say, actually, there was something intellectually quite interesting. And in terms of the the development of the UK, ultimately, an interesting and in some ways constructive part of the story. I mean, she's remained an incredibly controversial figure. But in a sense, the world view sometimes made the interesting, intellectually interesting, and clearly kind of in zeitgeist terms, significant, you know, things that were happening and the ideas and the experimentation which was happening with the economy and all the rest of it it was not taken as seriously in my view as it should have been not because of uh, overt bias mm, i think you're wrong there you know not taken seriously i just think the problem there was largely that we had a lot of arts including myself arts arts educated I, I, I think that's it I, I, people I, I, who just didn't know enough had about finance and economics and we didn't have enough expertise i remember waking up as editor of panorama uh, because I'd had a conversation with Bernard Ingham, who was at Mrs. Thatcher's press officer, and he was slating me for a programme we'd done, in which he said, you know, you said we're cut cutting public expenditure. We're not. We're cutting the rate of increase of public yeah. expenditure. And I went back and I realised he's right. And I looked around my team and I looked at myself and I thought, 
we're not quali- hold no. on we better do some fresh recruiting here no i think one of your strengths as an editor was actually humility which was not necessarily in very particularly large su- supply in the bbc at that at that moment and that that business of I don't understand this. Maybe the audience doesn't understand it. Let's actually, you know, you were one of the first editors, I think, in BBC television to be wanting explanation. You came back after lunch one Friday and said, let's do the entire program about the failure of the Russian grain harvest. And it's fair to say that the researchers on on Nationwide were were starting at two o'clock in the afternoon from a fairly low basis of knowledge about that. (laughs) Well, let's go back to let's go back let's go back to that period, though, Mark. I want to talk to you a bit personally because I could say a number of things about you. Rarely see you without a smile. Haven't haven't, um, have ever seen you lose your temper, etc. But when I first met you, I had great difficulty in placing you. I mean, your background is you. Sort of, you you come from a pretty um, well, not particularly well off background. Mm. Your mother was uh, Irish. Yeah, uh, you got a, a scholarship, I think, to uh, a Roman Catholic public school. Went to Oxford. But when you came into the BBC, and I first saw you at twenty four, um, you seemed very independent of everything. I mean, mostly you could place people, and they grow out or they develop or whatever. But there was always slightly a bit of an outsider about you. Did you feel an outsider? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's a that's a that's a perceptive observation about me. I think I, no, I, I did, I do. I tell this story quite often, but I grew up in Hertfordshire, just outside London, Welling Garden City, with by the age of seven or eight an Irish accent because of the immense influence of my mother. And I was sent to Miss Baines, an elocution teacher, to lose my Irish accent because my poor Irish mother thought that. Um, sounding Irish would hold me back. In the, in the 1960s, Irish people were treated to discrimination and, um, and contempt. Well, Irish Catholic during the Troubles was not the best passport. And the Troubles from the late 60s, early 70s, I remember kind of hatred, actually, it, uh, towards my mother when she spoke in a, in a shop or something. Uh, yeah, I think there's definitely a kind of a, a sort of Irish side to me, which is quite quizzical and amused by the British and their, their British ways, even though the other half of me is actually British. So there's a kind of, uh, some kind of split personality thing going on. Yeah, but you also married an American Jew and you live in America, but you live in the UK. I mean, you are floating somewhere over the Atlantic, aren't you? I'm a rootless cosmopolitan. I used to be a (laughs) member of the British establishment, Roger, but I've now, I've now, you know, upgraded and I'm a rootless cosmopolitan. That's right. (laughs) What you still are, though, I am told, is a Catholic, because I was talking to one of your friends who said to me that he was involved with a particularly particularly big crisis at the BBC, and in the middle of negotiations, you said, sorry, I've got to go to Mass. <laughs> Is that true? It's possible. I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit immediately intervened or anything like that, but I, I go to Mass whenever, every Sunday whenever I can, yeah. I mean, and, you know, you can argue whether that's habit or, or whatever. I mean, people sometimes describe me as a devout Catholic. I think practising Catholic is a more accurate expression. And do you want your children to be religious? I mean, they obviously have a choice, given... Uh, they, well, and, and, and by the way, my view about religion is, my, like, is very much like my view about free speeches, which is everyone needs to find that path for themselves. And my, my, I won't say any more about my children that they've they've got different paths. There's a kind of range, there's a range of things going on religiously amongst my three children. Uh, sometimes a range of things within one of them. But um, but uh, no, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think human beings have to, in the end, find their own way. That, um, in, in matters of religion. Yeah. And just one thing, final thing on, on, on this thing about religion. I mean, uh, and I want to deal a little bit later with, towards the end more with public service broadcasting again, but given the fact 
that I think on the whole people in broadcasting tend to be, I think, less religious than the rest of the country. And given the fact, for example, in the UK, we have so many people from different religious backgrounds now, surely religious literacy ought to be at the heart of public service broadcasting. Yes, you've argued that for many years, and I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And and I think back to that business of a broad worldview, which can, as it were, not know its own limitations, cannot understand its own limits. I think religious literacy, so not necessarily religious belief, but kind of knowledge and at some level a kind of emotional empathy to what might be happening with religion even if you don't actually feel religious feelings yourself i think uh, has been lacking not just at the bbc but in journalism and more broadly in media everywhere i've seen it which is in many countries now and that that's been a problem not least because although I don't want to overstate this, but the the stance of, as it were, rational agnosticism or, you know, um, to some extent, just a a kind of lack of interest or or, or feeling of of the relevance is is actually fairly culturally specific. It's one of these things which sounds like it maybe it's universal. It's massively biased towards white, more prosperous, more educated people on a global level. The the world's vast non-white majority population is far more likely to have deep religious faith connected to heritage and identity and indeed in many cases to politics in a way which rational agnostics in the prosperous north uh, often find repellent but there are just realities of human behavior so you you can discover that not really having a, a feel for or knowledge of religion actually ends up meaning also not having a feel or a knowledge of vast populations around the world who represent very significant minorities in your own country and a lot of misunderstanding and indeed separation and intercommunal tension can come from something which seems like you know in a debating club amongst you know kind of uh, uh, university educated you know like like a like a sort of enlightenment discussion where we're we're just discussing theories about God and all the rest of it, whereas actually, for many of us, religion plays a very big part in our lives. It's part of our habit. It's part of the way we live. It's the way we see the world. Uh, it's not just a, a debating point sort of thing. In fact, it's, it's least of all is it a debating point. Let me take uh, you through your career very quickly here. After leaving leaving Nationwide, you were nicked to work on Breakfast Time to help on the launch. So I was very cross about that, but never mind. But uh, then you Roger, found yourself... Uh, import, yes. Important fact, came to America for the best part of a year yes. for breakfast, which has played obviously a fairly large part in my subsequent biography. Yes, your marriage, for a start. Um, yeah, for a start and, and for a finish. That's right. That's one of the core threads. And so that, that yes. period, Nationwide and, and Breakfast, are... Yeah. Is actually, in retrospect, feels fairly momentous in terms of value. And by the way, of course, it's serendipity. It wasn't, you know, it's it just the way things yeah. worked out. But it's serendipity, I suppose, as well, that you ended up in Tiananmen Square. And, you know, being you, being me, whatever, when you're in the middle of that, you, your primary concern, rather stupidly in some ways, is how do we, what is the story? How do we get it out? How do we transmit it? Whatever. But the moment you got it out and you looked around you in Tiananmen Square, what did you think? Well, the, you know, if you imagine that history's got, you know, fault lines, you know, a bit like standing astride the San Andreas Fault or something, that, that sometimes the earth moves and two plates start moving away from each other or crashing into each other, it feels like you're standing there. 
you know, that we, where does history happen? The stuff you read, read about in books. And it's like you're literally suddenly unexpectedly find yourself standing in the very spot as an eyewitness. A lot of TV, particularly if you become a senior, t- I was actually editor of the 9 o'clock news at that point. And if you're a se- even, you know, I was quite a kind of senior executive, quite young, it can feel very virtual. You know, you're in, I'm actually in the studio at the moment. In, in, you're in a studio, there's no windows, you know, the, you, there are lots of monitors or there's audio coming in and you're removed from the event. I wasn't. You could smell a million people. You could smell the heat, sweat, the rest of it. It's, it's like being at Glastonbury or a kind of big rock concert in some ways, this kind of complete human throbbing sort of presence. And the other thing, I think, which is, again, back to humility, we had no idea what was going on and we had no idea what was going to happen, <laughs> essentially. I mean, literally. And, and by the way, all of the experts, this very interesting thing about the modern world, it's like it's almost like the experts knew least of all because all of the pattern recognition, you know, most experts, the political commentators, they're working on pattern recognition. All They've seen this before. Russia won't invade the Ukraine because it's not a rational thing to do and therefore every leader's rational. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to go back to the absolute bare essentials of reporting the news, which is literally watch, listen, wait and try not to form your judgment too quickly. So it's like elemental journalism, fault line of history. And, well, you know what this is like, Roger. It's like you're, you're, uh, there's a kind of hyper-reality. It's like you, you, know, you are more alive as a journalist than you will ever be, have been, or, or, and perhaps ever will be again. So it's an extraordinarily engrossing, a remarkable experience. Yeah, amazing. Pri- privilege, actually. Amazing privilege in many ways. But did you feel that totally irrational thing, or really a sense of guilt, that in the end, in in circumstances like that, you should be stepping down on the other side, and of course you know you shouldn't, because your job is to report. Many people do. I don't. I mean, I have got a detachment. I I mean, you know, roughly the time I joined Nationwide, I I decided not to vote. And with one or two exceptions, I haven't voted. And I've not been politically involved engaged at all in my adult lifetime i mean i've voted a few times when my children were able to vote for the first time i wasn't trying to discourage them from voting it's something very particular to do with my my vocation that i didn't want to become politically involved or emotionally connected to one side or the other and i, I can i can discuss political ideas and sometimes i have you know kind of as it were recommendations on what i think should happen but generally i've i've I, I've I found it fairly easy. Possibly this is a you know actually a, a kind of limitation or a fault in my character, just to say actually you know what my job is to watch this and under, try and understand it rather than take part in it. So I think kind of humanitarian gestures are different. I have certainly crossed the boundary in terms of helping people in in, in distress and all the rest of it but i, I, th- I, I but i think you know the, the truth is i never felt i understood what was going on in chenaman square well enough to in a sense even to, to have known quite what to do if i had wanted to cross the line well you then went on you did i say you were the editor of nine o'clock news you edited panorama you were controller of bbc two you did made sure the Simon Sharma series was made. 
though your, <laughs> your subsequent, a subsequent controller of BBC2 tried to schedule it late at night. I think, uh, and she was persuaded by a certain person who had become director of television. I think that would not be a good thing. Uh, he then went on to check, be chief executive of Channel 4. And I remember then having lunch with you. You asked me to lunch, which was a great um, honour, of course. Um, and you were, I thought what was going on at that lunch was that you'd criticised the BBC for having it on, or saying it had jacuzzi levels of cash. And yet you knew you were going to have to probably go and put your hat in the ring or accept the invitation to become director general of the BBC because it was in such a mess. And I had the sense that you were rehearsing your thoughts with me. Uh, was that a difficult decision, going from Channel 4 to BBC as director general? It really was. It really was. Yeah, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I mean, you know, and, and it wasn't... I mean, I felt in. A, I loved the BBC. I, lo- I loved and loved the BBC. I felt honestly, I'd escaped. I'd worked for it for twenty-two years. Uh, I'd come to Channel Four. I loved Channel Four. I loved the people. I loved its size. Relatively small organisation, not by normal standards, but compared to the BBC, a, a small, simple organisation, and different in flavour and. Like the first step into the, you know, it's like an old lag, you know, getting out after a long prison sentence. The first step towards a normal life of, you know, going clean and, you know, <laughs> sort of getting a proper job and rather than being inside, you know, wormwood scrubs. And, you know, the uh, a kind of hand <laughs> comes out and pulls you back. And I, I, I'd seen at pretty close quarters what it's like at the top of the BBC. So I had very few illusions about... I mean, no illusions. I should explain to people who are listening to this who, who don't remember, uh, there's just been a couple of resignations of the chairman of the BBC, the former director general of the BBC, um, and it was a pretty big yeah. crisis. So actually, in the end, you, I got the impression at lunch was uh, like that. You didn't really want to do it. You knew you had to do it. You just rehearsed the art. Was there a way out? <laughs> no, there wasn't a way out. You had to go. And yeah. congratulations on surviving eight years as director general without being fired or having to resign. Although at the end of the time... <laughs> yeah. Chris Patton, I mean, uh, who was the chairman, clearly thought he could run the BBC himself. I remember going to his appointment uh, hearing at the House of the Parliament and listening and thinking, oh dear, he doesn't understand what the difference between chairman and director general. No, I want to say, though, that I would say that the, the you know, there's often been a you know, discussion about how the director general role of the at the BBC is is a is a, a difficult job or an impossible job or whatever. I think becoming chair, being chairman of the BBC has turned out to be a very tough gig as well. And deep down, I think that the, there's been a debate about in a way which is, I think, interesting. And it happens in other countries. It's very sharp in the UK. What's the BBC for? And what kind of culture is it there to present? And what kind of identity, national identities are there to present. And I think the debate essentially is between people who think that it's there to present a kind of model, uh, you know, of course, it's always their model identity. And so there are cultural cues, there's a version of British history, there's a version of of what is good in in drama, appropriate comedy or whatever. And that BBC, in the end, is there almost as a piece of social engineering to hold the country together by presenting a kind of, it's almost like the equivalent of standard English, there's going to be a standard culture or or an idealised culture 
and that whenever the BBC doesn't do that, it's being treacherous. It, it's letting the side down. It's becoming politically correct. And often the signal about this in the current era is like, you know, you've done some bit of PC gone mad sort of thing. Um, woke. It's all woke. Actually, my view is that the BBC is in the tradition, which frankly goes back to Chaucer and Shakespeare and Dickens, where the culture you're trying to capture is it's a polyphony or a cacophony of different cultures and voices. And it absolutely contains, you know, Coral Eden Song and Gardener's Question Time and, you know, uh, uh, back in the day, the, the Great British Bake Off. That's all there. But all this other stuff is there, all these other voices and these other experiences and traditions. And I think the idea of, sometimes I call it as, as, as Dryden did about Chaucer, here is God's plenty, it's everything. And it's everything thrown on the air. But you see, the thing is, that's the ideal. But since you left, uh, due to the uh, cuts in the licence fee or the freezing and inflation, the present director general has 30... uh, Well, actually, I think it's worse. I think it's about 35% less in real terms. So instead of being able to satisfy most people, he's now having to make very difficult choices. And I think that what I think is missing... I'm a great fan of this director general, by the way, and what he's trying to do and trying to arrange for a future without licensing and so on. But what is not happening is a public debate about what public service broadcasting is now, how it should be paid for, and so on. Do you agree that there needs to be a debate about what public service broadcasting or media is now? Well, um, <laughs> I think the, the thing I've talked about just now, like what's the BBC's mission in terms of national identity and culture, that debate would take place no matter how much funding the BBC had. I agree that, you know, a, a compressed licence fee and the need for cuts makes it so much harder to do justice to the mission. But even if there was all the money in the world, I think there is a battle going on beyond the BBC about who are we, where are we going, what do we stand for, and that if you are unlucky enough to be chair of the BBC, in many ways you're in the crosshairs every bit as much as the DG. And and successive chairs, probably over the last 20 years or more, I mean, arguably Christopher Bland is the last is the last chair who had a kind of a pretty clean run as chair. And he stepped down, I think, in 99 or, or 2000, so 23 years ago. It's been very tough for chairs to front it. So, you know, when people criticise Chris Patton, I'd say, again, you know, I'd like to see how you do that job sort of thing. But just being more specific, about public service broadcasting universality would be something would have to be there was a bit of part of it what about local and and you would i'm sure i argue for a sort of independent as as independent as possible new service you probably argue for the world service etc what about local journalism because you've got market failure there of course you know about the united states backwards i think local journalism is incredibly incredibly important and you know if you take we take you know your home county Cumbria, Radio Cumbria, I mean, just the geography of of Cumbria and the difficulty of local newspapers means it's really important, you know. And, And by the way, during COVID or during, you know, more extreme weather, simply the emergency service aspect of local radio, despite the internet, Despite, you know, what we were told was going to be an amazing plenitude of, of different news sources and all the rest of it, it's really important. But local radio isn't really important. And I think there will be a debate. Mercifully, I'm no longer paid to uh, take part in the debate. But I'm, I'm a voice very much still in favour of a strong 
full-service, broad BBC. I think we're living in a moment where people, you know, even people, by the way, who vote Conservative, I mean, twice as many Conservatives think taxes should stay where they are or should increase as think taxes should reduce. This is Conservative voters, according to last year's very big National Social Attitude Survey. Uh, they want great public services. They want actually public services to really deliver because these are difficult times. Oddly, the BBC is one public service which is probably easier to bring to 100% performance or great performance with a fee which, despite all the noise in, in the press, actually most people would, maybe grudgingly, but accept is pretty good, good value for money. So it's, it's not even a particularly unpopular tax. So I would say, in the end, common sense would say, in the mid 2020s, the need for the BBC because of market failure is actually growing and is greater than it used to be. It's not diminishing. Secondly, it's a great way of genuinely celebrating the cultures of uh, the different cultures within British identity, geographical, ethnic, religious, all of it. And it's a great way of getting the country to listen to and talk to itself. And if not the BBC, then who, I'd like to know. And finally, Mark, I want to ask you about a couple of scandals that you were on the edge of, shall we say, Jimmy Salva, but more particularly the Russell Brand scandal, which happened initially when you were DG and uh, when he didn't fire, but should we put it this way, the controller of Radio 2 and one of the senior people stood down, doubtless encouraged by you in the circumstances. You were very tough on that. And Russell Brand, I mean, directly, Russell, Russell Brand, I mean, I'm uh, Russell Brand came into my radar. I, I was, it was a half term. I was abroad in Sicily, I think. It, it, it was a half term period. And so I think, I guess late on a Sunday, I think the, then perhaps even reached on the Monday after the, the, there was a piece in the Sunday newspaper, which kicked it off. So, I mean, I really focused on that program, the Russell Brand show on a Monday. And by, I think we'd by Thursday published a report about it and we'd seen some departures from the BBC and, and Russell Brand himself had taken the opportunity to re resign from his own program on the Wednesday. Um, had he not resigned, absolutely certainly would have left anyway. So within a few days. But what I'm interested in, well, I'm sure most people think you acted decisively, but I wonder when you think, looking back now, on why did he get such prominence? And why did he get, he got wider prominence and The Guardian had him writing as a column for them, etc., etc. He met Ed Miliband, the senior Labour figure at one stage, and, and, and he was, hey, why? I mean, look, you look at it now and you think, why did it happen? I agree with that. I mean, I think that I mean, my own view was once the, the, the particular episode of the Russell Brand show, which led to Russell's departure and everyone's departures, came to light, and I got the chance, I have to say, for the first time, to uh, after it was broadcast and after, indeed, it had been rightly noted in a Sunday newspaper, it took me no time at all to decide that that was completely unacceptable and just by itself demonstrated there'd been a complete failure of editorial compliance and judgment at the radio network which had approved it for transmission. And so I, I want to say I, I, it was not a difficult decision, um, having heard that this was not, a, a, in my view, a close call. It was a, a egregious and completely uh, unacceptable editorial mistake and we needed to act immediately and promptly and we did and you know if as it were i had learned of other issues i'd have acted on those as well i mean my, my, my style was not to hold hold back on these things if i felt something was wrong my preference was to try and act very quickly 
I mean, one of uh, our past prime ministers, Harold Macmillan, was asked, you know, uh, famously what he most feared. And he said, events, dear boy, events. I wonder if that implies to director general. I mean, you'll be on a holiday, you could be doing anything, and suddenly out of left field you get hit by something which you couldn't have imagined. But in the end, I mean... <laughs> You could, I mean, you know, would the BBC better if everything was pre-recorded, listened to by senior executives and lawyers, and nothing ever got, you wouldn't do any live programming, you'd, you'd, you'd pre-record everything, including the news, and fact-check it and all the rest of it. The choices made, I mean, in the end, in the 1920s, was to create an organisation, which I don't know how much, but my guess is every year, the, the BBC broadcasts perhaps 100 or 150 years worth of content. So a century and a half of content, if it was one channel, broadcast every year. So a hundred, you know, all those local radio stations, the net, national networks, the global news channels and so on, the web, which used to have probably even more now, tens of millions of pages. No human being would literally could live long enough to listen and watch a single year's output from the BBC. You have a, therefore... A pyramid of editorial control with a kind of chain of command, and you're as, you're as good as your pyramid. You try and make the best choices you can. Sometimes things go wrong, and you'd expect them to go wrong. You know what's remarkable to me, Mark, talking you through this is you're going to start all over again with with an organisation <laughs> where you'll get a call at two o'clock in the morning, and who knows what. Well, I, I must be therefore some kind of addict. You just said, Rogers, right? <laughs> uh, well, it must be. Yeah, it, it must be. Um, just by the way, finally, um, are there going to be any memoirs? Have you got diaries? Are you going to... You've done the lectures. Are you going to write the memoirs? No. No. I have to say, I'm not a great personal fan, you know, in terms of summer reading on the beach. Memoirs by distinguished former colleagues is not <laughs> top of the list. And uh, uh, if I'm not prepared to read them, I don't think I should write one. Well, I think that'll be a great loss. However, uh, Sir Mark Thompson, thank you very much for talking to us. And um, good luck. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Mark Thompson's book, Enough Said, subtitled What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics, is published by Bodley Head. It's a fascinating read and, though published in 2016, is even more relevant today. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like us to keep going, please do support us. It's less than £2 a month. You can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.